The Secret Church podcast is a resource from Radical.net. In Secret Church One, David Platt examines the 39 books of the Bible that make up the Old Testament. The Old Testament can sometimes be confusing or intimidating, but as we will see, the God-inspired words of the Old Testament point us to Christ, His Church, and to God's plan for all nations. For the Secret Church One study guide and other resources that go along with this audio, visit Radical.net slash SC1. And this is Secret Church One, Episode One. Well, if you uh, have a Bible, and I hope you do, I want to invite you to open to the Old Testament. If you don't know where that is, just open your Bible and you got about a two-thirds chance of getting it right. Let me encourage you also to pull out those notes from that pretty thick packet that we're going to try to dive into together tonight. Two, uh, two images captivate my mind as we come together tonight. The first is of uh, the first opportunity that I had to be with underground house churches in Asia. And uh, just by the grace of God, he opened up a door for, um, for them to invite me to come and, and to, to do some training with them. That was not a part of the plan in that trip to this part of Asia. Um, but they invited me to come and we sit down. And I didn't know what to expect. Walked into a room, see a small group of believers gathered together in a circle. And uh, we start studying God's Word about 2 in the afternoon, and by 10 o'clock at night, we're still going strong. And they look at me, and they said, we need you to teach us all the books of the Old Testament. <laughs> and so that began a journey over the next two weeks where we did that. And the people who would gather together, and these are most of them farmers, agricultural workers uh, who completely laid down everything for two weeks um, at great cost to them and their families to come together about 12 hours a day to study God's Word together. Uh, just a deep passion for God's Word and wanting to make the most out of the opportunity they have to study it. The second picture that captivates me as uh, I stand before you tonight is uh, of our brothers and sisters in Sudan, part of the focus of our time together as we focus on Africa tonight. And, and sitting there in mud huts in the Sudan, these believers who have grown, many of them grown up with war over the last 20 years and seen about a million of our brothers and sisters die at their sides during that time and to teach them and the entire time teaching them to hardly ever see their faces the entire time, hardly ever make an eye contact, not because they were asleep, not because they were, they were daydreaming off somewhere else, but because they were writing down every single thing I said because they knew, and they would come up to me afterwards, and they would say, David, we know we have a responsibility to take everything you've taught us and teach it in our tribes, to translate it in our languages and teach it in our tribes. And I give you those two pictures for two reasons. Number one, the picture in Asia of believers who gathered together intentionally for just deep time in the study of God's Word. As you look at the uh, 
packet of notes you've got, it's fairly thick. And some of you may be a little intimidated at this point with the things that uh, at least we're going to try our best to cover over four hours tonight. And some of you may be thinking, wow, this is going to be overload. Well, I hope that's what you're thinking because we are going to fill each other with the knowledge of God's word so deep tonight that we will be overflowing by the time we leave here. And this is the purpose of our time together tonight is not entertainment. The purpose is to get into God's word. And I believe we will find great fulfillment when we do that. So I just want you to know this is this is more seminary class than it is Sunday morning service, and it's not for the faint of heart or mind, and, and so I, I pray that we will keep our mind and our attention devoted to his word, and we're going we're gonna to get in as much as we possibly can to make the most of our time together tonight, which means we'll be flying through some of this stuff. Just do your best to, to keep up. The second picture from Sudan I give you because the overarching purpose of our time together tonight is not to have a greater knowledge of the Old Testament, although I think that would be great. The purpose of our time together tonight is not to be able to study the Old Testament more effectively in each of our personal lives, although that would be a great byproduct as well. My purpose in our time together tonight is to lead us in such a way that when we leave this place, every single one of us would be able to take these notes and reteach the Old Testament to somebody else. If what we do tonight stops in here, in your life, then we have missed the entire point. We have received and we have given ourselves to a self-centered study of God's word. However, if what we do tonight is aimed at reproducing everything that's been entrusted to us from God's word and teaching in others' lives, then we'll be a part of making disciples of all nations. And it won't just be thinking about the people in Africa. We'll be a, have an opportunity to impact people in Africa as a result of what's going on. My prayer is that an army of believers from this room would be equipped to teach the Old Testament as a result of our time together tonight. So with that said, we're going we're gonna to dive right in. It's quite a task. Uh, uh, an overview of the Old Testament. I kind of feel like, you ever heard of Larry Lawnchair? You ever heard of this guy, Larry Walters? True story. Years ago, here's how it goes. Larry's boyhood dream was to fly. When he graduated from high school, he joined the Air Force in hopes of becoming a pilot. Unfortunately, poor eyesight disqualified him. When he, followed, when he was finally discharged, he had to satisfy himself with watching jets fly over his backyard. One day, though, Larry had a bright idea. He decided he was going to fly. He went to a local store and purchased 45 weather balloons and several tanks of helium. The weather balloons, when fully inflated, would measure more than four feet across. So back home, Larry securely strapped the balloons to his sturdy lawn chair. He anchored the chair to the bumper of his Jeep and inflated the balloons with helium and then climbed on for a test while it was still only a few feet above the ground. Satisfied it would work, Larry packed several sandwiches and drinks, loaded his pellet gun, figuring he could pop a few balloons when it was time to descend, and he went back to the floating lawn chair. He'd have tied himself in along with his pellet gun and provisions. Larry's plan was to lazily float up to a height of about 30 feet above his backyard after severing the anchor and in a few hours come back down. Things didn't quite work out that way. When he cut the cord anchor in the lawn chair to his Jeep, Larry did not float lazily up to 30 or so feet. Instead, he streaked into the L.A. sky as if shot from a cannon. <laughs> he did not level off at 30 feet, nor did he level off at 100 feet. After climbing and climbing, he leveled off at approximately 16,000 feet in the air. 
Can you imagine being in a lawn chair at 16,000 feet in the air? At that height, he couldn't risk shooting any of the balloons lest he unbalance the load and really find himself in trouble. So he stayed there drifting cold and frightened for many hours. Then he got in real trouble. He found himself drifting into the primary approach corridor of Long Beach International Airport. A United pilot first spotted Larry. He radioed the tower and described passing a guy in a lawn chair. <laughs> Can you imagine? Uh, you got a guy in a lawn chair up here? <laughs> and he has a gun. Meanwhile, Larry, feeling cold and dizzy in the thin air, three miles above the ground, shot, began to shoot several of the balloons with a pellet gun to bring himself back down to earth. He attempted to aim his descent at a large expanse of grass of a North Long Beach country club, but Larry came up short and ended up entangling his tethers in a set of high-voltage power lines <laughs> about 10 miles off of his liftoff site. The plastic tethers protected Walters from electrocution as he dangled above the ground until firemen and utility crews could cut the power to the lines. Larry managed to maneuver his chair over a wall, step out, and cut the chair free. He was later quoted as saying, a guy just can't sit around. <laughs> I kind of feel like Larry tonight, if I can be honest with you. We are going to, we are going to, uh, to go up pretty high and get an overview of the books of the Old Testament and what they reveal about God and ultimately our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we're going to go up pretty high, and it may be a little uncomfortable at times, but I say let's cut the tethers loose and take it for what it's worth. Here we go. If you got your notes there, why study the Old Testament? Why is it important that we even gather together to spend time studying the Old Testament? Some common myths that we throw out. Number one, the Old Testament is insignificant. Many times we think... This is just background material for the New Testament. It's almost like why would we want to pay attention to the, 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 second, or the first half of the game if we, want to, if we already know the, the results of the second half of the game? Why would, we, why would we want to sit in the stands way back there while you're blocked from your view than really be on the field seeing what unfolds in the New Testament? The Old Testament is insignificant. It really, it's really not that significant for us today in the 21st century. Second common myth, the Old Testament is irrelevant contains a lot of stuff that we don't observe anymore that really don't seem to relate to our lives. There's a lot of people, even in Christianity, who say that this book is for, more for Israel, not for us. Let's be honest, what relevance can an ancient animal-slaughtering religion that talks about God in a portable tent have for Christianity in the 21st century? What does that really have to do with us? You ever read a passage in the Old Testament and just think, why, Lord, did you decide that that would be included? 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 23. From there, Elisha went up to Bethel. As he was walking along the road, some youths came up out of the town and jeered at him. Go on up, you bald head, they said. <laughs> Go on up, you bald head. He turned around, looked at them, and called down a curse on them in the name of the Lord. Then two bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of the youths. Students, be encouraged. This is how youth ministry is represented in the Old Testament. 
why, why, why do we need to know about the bears taking out the youths? Um, so the Old Testament, this is irrelevant. What does it have to do with us? So you didn't know the Old Testament was going to be so much fun, did you? Okay, third, the Old Testament is inconsistent. The Old Testament is inconsistent. It doesn't make sense in light of the New Testament. This is where a lot of people disconnect the Old Testament from Christianity as a whole. They look at the Old Testament as a Jewish book. As well as uh, even cults use the Old Testament. Mormons use the Old Testament. Even Muslims use parts of the Old Testament as part of their scriptures. So why would, why would the Old Testament and the New Testament, how do they go together? They seem inconsistent, particularly. And this is one of the most common questions in, uh, in house churches that I've been in. Why? Why would the, the God of grace and love and mercy and compassion that we see unfold in the New Testament, why would we see this picture of judgment and wrath and punishment of sin in the Old Testament? How do those go together? How do you reconcile the judgment that we see in the Old Testament, whether it's 42 poor youths or whole nations that are being wiped out? How do you justify that with a God of love and grace and mercy? It seems inconsistent. Next, finally, the Old Testament is incomprehensible incomprehensible. And by that, basically, we're just, we're just thinking it's cumbersome. It's confusing. It doesn't make sense. And it often leads us to boredom, apathy, and neglect. It's just plain hard to understand. These book are la- books are large. They're filled with all kinds of history that many of us don't know and unpronounceable names that we never could begin to talk about. How do you, how do you really begin to understand this? It's overwhelming. It's long. It's tedious. We're a lot more familiar in the Gospels where we see Jesus And so we use the Old Testament every once in a while in our quiet times, but the bulk of our faith is dependent on the New Testament. The Old Testament is just, it doesn't make sense. Well, those are myths that I hope will be dispelled tonight by one central message. The Old Testament, ladies and gentlemen, is invaluable. It's invaluable. If we abandon the books of the Old Testament, then we abandon the revelation of God. Let me say that one more time. We've we got to get a hold of this. If we abandon the books of the Old Testament, we abandon the revelation of God. And more than that, we hinder our ability to understand the New Testament's revelation of God. If we abandon the Old Testament, we'll never get the picture the New Testament is trying to teach us. It's key. You might write this down. There are at least 1,600 direct quotations of the Old Testament and the New Testament. At least 1,600. In addition to all kinds of other allusions and, and references to it. If we don't get what the Old Testament teaches, we'll never get Christ. It's important for us to remember the Lord of the universe who gave us this book does not waste words. He gave us all of this book for a reason. Now, that doesn't mean that it's not confusing, that sometimes it's tedious, that sometimes it doesn't make sense. And I'll go ahead and, and be honest. I'm not going to be able tonight to answer all the questions that we may have that come up in the Old Testament. There are so many. We could spend a couple of secret church nights just looking at questions that come out that we wonder from studying the Old Testament. But my, my desire is for us to see an overall picture of what God is doing and why the Old Testament is so important. What we're going to do, how should we study the Old Testament? I want us to look at the Old Testament through three different lenses or three different dimensions, three different perspectives on the Old Testament. First one, number one, the literary dimension. And by that I mean this is a, this is a book. The Old Testament is, is a book. It's a piece of literature. And so we're going to think about it just real briefly tonight is what kind of literature is this and how does that affect the way we understand the Old Testament? So number one, the literary dimension. Number two, the historical dimension. This is a real history of real people. 
And we're going we're gonna to dive in a little bit just to get a background for understanding the history. Most of us probably have little knowledge of the overall history of the Old Testament and how all this ties together. The Old Testament is a fragmented book for us, and it, we kind of try to piece it together in our minds, but it just doesn't make sense. So I want us to walk away tonight with an overall knowledge of the history and how all this fits together. So we'll look at it from a literary perspective, a historical perspective, and then third, a theological dimension. This book was not just written to tell us a story about history, but it was written to demonstrate God in the middle of history. And that's what theology is, the study of God. So here's an overview for how we're going to approach our time together tonight. Two parts. This part, and we'll we'll break at about nine, and then we'll come back together uh, for a second part. And what we're going to do is during the first part, we're going to hit the the literary and historical overview. And we're going to get a picture, and hopefully, we've we've got in your notes, we're going to dive into as many Old Testament books as we can just to give an overview of how they fit together. And then with that basic foundation, that's going to lay the foundation for part two, which is where we're going to see the overall storyline of how God is revealing himself, not only to the people of Israel, not only to the people of the New Testament, but to us today. And we're going to see the riches and the beauty of the Testament unfold. We've got to get a foundation in order to get there, though. And so we're going to dive into the literary historical in this first part, and then we'll get to the second part. Hopefully that will help us stay awake come about 1130 or 1145. All right? The Old Testament is literature. The Old Testament is literature. The Old Testament is a collection of 39 books. 39 books. 39 books in the Old Testament. How many in the New Testament? 27. 66 total. So you've got 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. Traditionally, when it comes to classifying the different types of literature, it's traditionally classified according to different genres. Genres or types of literature. So you've got people who say, well, you've got the law at the beginning, then you've got history, then you've got prophecy, and you've got poetry. And so we divide it up against a, a much different genres. But that, that kind of classification really doesn't do justice to the literary picture that the Old Testament is giving us because it is rich in literary form. It's rich in literary form. It's got more than just a law and a history and prophecy and poetry. It's a lot deeper than that. It's rich in literary form with historical narratives. It does have stories pictures of what's happened in history. But not just that, it's got laws and statues. It's got laws that God has given to his people. It's got prophetic oracles pronouncing things that are happening in the future. It's got genealogies. Genealogies, by the way, with a purpose, not just a list of names so we can get through that chapter quicker than other chapters by skimming down to the back. There's a reason. There's a reason. Oh, you do it. Okay. You say, God knows. He doesn't think I need to know all these names. So you just go to the end. You say, I run my chapter for the day. Genealogies, but they're there for a purpose. There's a reason he's given us these names. Isn't it good to know that we have a God who is concerned about us as individuals and who knows your name? Let that transform the way you look at a genealogy to know that God counts your name as valuable and not just this whole picture but your name. Genealogies. Then you've got songs. You've got things that are intended to be sung in the Old Testament. We won't be doing any of that tonight. I won't be leading in that way. Uh, wisdom sayings. You've got wisdom sayings. You have apocalyptic visions. And this is where it gets really extravagant, kind of wild in the Old Testament. You've got visions, apocalyptic visions, like Daniel, which we'll dive into a little later. Many more. All kinds of different literary forms come together. And knowing each of those... 
affects the way we're going to understand the Old Testament, knowing that there's different types of literature here. So when we come to the book of Proverbs, we're going to read it differently than we're going to read the book of 1 Samuel. When we come to the book of Leviticus, we're not going to skip over it so we can get to the good stuff in, in 1 Kings. No, we're going we're gonna to dive into Leviticus and we're going to appreciate what it is for the type of foreign it is, the laws that were given to the priests. So, all that to say, rich in literary form. It's written by a variety of authors. Don't forget, though, one divine author. One divine author of the whole Old Testament as well as the New Testament. It's the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God taking all kinds of different men, different servants, and the beauty of Scripture, and we can dive into this much deeper, but the beauty of Scripture is God, the Holy Spirit, inspiring men just like you and me, their personalities, their gifts, their talents, their passions, and bringing God and man together to produce a book that is completely divinely inspired but also written by human authors. It's an incredible picture of this book, and that makes it unlike any other book. One divine author, the Holy Spirit, various human authors, predominantly written in what? Hebrew. Predominantly written in Hebrew, though some is in Aramaic. Predominantly written in Hebrew, though some is in Aramaic. It's written over a span of around about a thousand years. About a thousand years. Now, this is where we get into, and there is a variety of issues that we'll see tonight that are really open to discussion, debate, even among biblical scholars, biblical scholars who are following Christ, still debate about some of these things, but it's about a thousand years. What I'm going to try to do tonight is really focus on what we do know and leave some of the things that the Old Testament doesn't tell us specifically. Trust that that's not as important as the things that the Old Testament does tell us specifically. So, uh, written over a span of about a thousand years, earliest parts written around 1500 B.C., give or take a couple hundred years based on your view of when the Exodus happened. Most common two views of when the Exodus happened were either in the 15th century or the 13th century as when God brought his people out of slavery in Egypt through Moses. So either that happened in the 15th century or the 13th century, most likely. And what you've got is Moses, who's writing these first books in the Bible, who, who would write it during that time, either the 15th century, 13th century, somewhere in there. And then you've also got a, a book like Job that is in the middle of our Bible, but was actually written possibly even one of the first books written, if not the first book written in the Old Testament. could have been even before the Exodus. So you've got around 1500 B.C. and the latest parts written around 400 B.C. And that's where you come to Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, and that closes out the history, 400 B.C. And you've got about 400 years of silence until you get to the New Testament. You get to Christ, known as the intertestamental period. That's more than you wanted. Okay, over a span of about 1,000 years, 1,500 B.C. to about 400 B.C. How did we get the Old Testament? How did we get the Old Testament? It's collected, the Old Testament is collected into a canon by God's people, a canon. Now, a canon... That word literally means a measurement of standard or a, a, a measuring stick. Now, take that two ways, a measuring standard. Take it two ways. Number one, in order for a book to be included in the Old Testament, to be included in the canon, it had to meet up to certain standards. It, they would look at who wrote it. They would look at when was it written, how was it written, and they would look at how it corresponded to the rest of the revelation that God had given through other books. And that was really, if you had to simplify how books were included in the canon, those were kind of the three, three criteria. Who wrote it, who was the audience, and how does it fit with everything else? And based on that, that, that was the standard by which books would be included by God's people in the Old Testament and how he led them to get us to these 39 books. 
But it's also a standard in the sense that these are the books, the canon, by which our lives as God's people are measured. So there's a measurement for the book to be included in. As the book is included in the canon of the Old Testament, then our lives are put up as a mirror to these books to see how we measure up. So that's what it means to be collected into a canon, transmitted through scribes. Transmitted through through scribes. This is where history gets really fascinating. I just want you to think about the book that you're holding in your hands, the Bible, specifically the Old Testament tonight, to realize that there have been countless people over the last few thousand years who have given their lives to making sure this word passes from generation to generation to generation. Scribes who had no word processing software, scribes who did not have computers, even typewriters, who were writing out by hand the words of the Old Testament so they would be passed down to the next generation and to the next generation and to the next, and it's an amazing thought that these scribes would do that, and we are indebted to them. Some may wonder, Dave, why are you so passionate about the word in the church? Here's why. Because there is a whole lineage of people who has been faithful to pass this word on from generation to generation. And God help us not to let it stop here. We're not going to ignore the word in the church. We're going to highlight the word in the church. It's going to be supreme. And we're going to follow in the tradition of those who have sacrificed their lives to make sure that word gets passed on. And that's our obligation. That is our responsibility as God's people. It is transmitted through them. Transmitted through scribes and then translated through various servants. Different people have translated along the way. The Septuagint. Let's say that together. Isn't that a fun word? Septuagint. That is the Greek Old Testament. The Greek Old Testament is called the Septuagint. We have dates to about 200, 300 B.C. And so many of the New Testament authors, when they quote from the Old Testament, were using the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament. This whole idea that it was translated into Greek, which affected the New Testament. But then, obviously, down the years, Adam and Eve did not speak English. I know that's a blow to our ego tonight. But neither did the Israelites. Moses didn't know English. Abraham, no English. David, no English. Jesus didn't even. Well, he knew it. Okay, he knew it. He knew it, but we need to realize that, once again, we are indebted to servants who have translated this book into our language. And on that note, I want to remind you that over 2,500 languages in the world still have no Bible translation. 2,500. An additional 1,000 have only the New Testament. What that means is over half of the languages in the world still don't have the books we're going to talk about tonight. Over the half of the languages in the world still don't have the Old Testament. And ladies and gentlemen, we have the resources to put a dent in those numbers in the church in America. God help us to be faithful to translate as servants of the word. Thank you for listening. You can find more episodes from Secret Church and thousands of other free resources from David Platt at Radical.net.